The following message was given at Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. Let's go to the Lord together in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful to be a part of the one universal church against which the gates of hell will never never prevail. We ask for your blessing upon our time this evening as we consider this passage, as we consider this book, as we consider your holy and inspired word. We pray that you would bless the preaching of it. We pray that you would bless your word to your people for their good and edification, for their building up, for our strengthening, for our trust in Christ and all His goodness to us. We pray, Father, that you would be at work in us, your people, for the sake of your name. We are weak. You are strong. You are mighty. You are sovereign. Man is but a breath. Help us to see it. Help us to know it. Help us to believe it. Bless your people now, we pray, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, have you ever asked the question, where was God in this? Now, I imagine when you asked that question, it wasn't during a a good time. It was probably during a very difficult and dark time in your life. You wondered, why did God let me go through this? Why didn't He intervene? Why did He feel so distant during those dark hours? And this is especially the case when we suffer at the hands of wicked men who have a lot of power, who have power over us. Uh, This can be governmental tyranny. We can look throughout history and we can see many Christians who have suffered greatly at the hands of a tyrannical government, at the the hands of uh, those who persecuted them and martyred them, Uh, a world that is hostile towards Christianity and wants to control our lives and the lives of our children. And this can uh, be abusive men who have authority over us and have used that authority to control, manipulate, oppress, or accuse us. And in those times, we can wonder, where was God? Well, today's passage, we see a tyrannical, abusive man who is hungry for power and control. And the passage is focused on him. The passage is describing his power and wealth in detail, in unusual detail. There's a lot of detail devoted to his power and wealth. In the meantime, God isn't even mentioned. God is hidden. And what the book of Esther is doing, what the Holy Spirit is doing here in the book of Esther, is He is painting a picture of really the way we experience things. Men seem to be in charge. Men seem to be in control. Men seem to be the sovereign ones. We clearly see their power. But where is God? He's hidden. But when we remember the rest of the story of Esther, when we remember the storyline of not only Esther, but the Bible, we see, and we're going to see in the book of Esther as we go along, God is actually behind the scenes, working mightily 
and powerfully in ways that we can't see, but ways that we actually can see by faith. It's God works deliverance, redemptive deliverance, even in times of darkness. In our darkness, as we go through difficulties, as the pomp of men are so in our face, and God seems so hidden, we know by faith and not by sight that God is working redemptive deliverance. He is working to deliver us all the more from our greatest enemies, sin, Satan, and the kingdom of darkness, and to conform us into the image of Christ. We need to be convinced of this by faith, not by sight, that God is the true sovereign and not man. No matter how powerful man is, man is never the sovereign. Only God, even when he seems hidden. Therefore, we do not fear men, but we can say with the psalmist in Psalm 56, 11, In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? And God's Word helps us in this because we are weak and we really can't always say that with conviction. God's Word, even in Esther, is helping us in this. So two signs of a wicked man showing us the need for the perfect man. One is self-promoting. And the second is self-protection. We don't want to be like this, but we know we need to be delivered from being like this by looking to the perfect man who is not like that. So first, self-promoting. And we read of Ahasuerus' power. Verse 1 says, This is the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia. Now, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew name for Xerxes. And this is the uh, Xerxes who was the fourth king of Persia from 486 to 465 B.C. And this is the king being referred to here in Esther. In India to Ethiopia would be from the Himalayas to the Sahara Desert. It's basically from Sudan, Egypt, to Nepal. This is the, the, basically the whole Middle East. This is massive. This is a huge kingdom. 127 provinces would be massive by the ancient Near East standards. It's estimated that his kingdom was 3.2 million square miles. This is twice as large as the Roman Empire in the 2nd century A.D. It's also estimated that his kingdom contained about 50 million people, which would be close to half the world's population during this time. Because of this, there's actually an inscription found written by Ahasuerus himself. And this is what he says. I am Xerxes. Maybe not in this tone. Well, I think it would be in this tone. I am Xerxes, the great king, the king of kings, the king of all countries, which speaks all kinds of languages, the king of this entire big and far-reaching earth. This king is very powerful and very mighty. And of course, with that, very arrogant and very prideful. Now, we are given an important piece of information in verse 3 that helps set the context. Uh, this party was thrown in the third year of his reign. And according to historical records, uh, this would be coming right off of a great military victory. Uh, there were a couple of Persian wars. His father, Darius, uh, was not quite able to defeat the Greeks during what was called the First Persian War. 
about 492 to 490 BC. However, Ahasuerus, he came and he finished the job quite successfully in the second invasion, which occurred about a decade later, about 470, uh, 480 to 479 BC. As, and as a result, Ahasuerus now reigns over many Greek cities. Again, 127 provinces. Just incredible. And so this party is in light of this great victory. This is why in verse 3 it says this party was for all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media, and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. So there was a military battle, one for him, and so he throws a party for his personnel. And this is quite a work party. Verse eight, 4 says that it lasted 180 days. That, that's half a year. Uh, just think about how rich this king is that he can throw a party for half a year in an amazing feast. Uh, it says that he threw a feast, and this would imply the best of food, the best of drinks, the greatest luxury. You know, it's quite a, it's quite a bit of work to, to feed people for a party that you throw for just an evening, right? You know, the work that goes into just, just an evening, and we usually even ask people to bring food. But imagine doing that for a whole half a year, and you're the one providing all of it, and it's the most luxurious food. This is the wealth and power that this king had, and this is the ancient Near East. It's just incredible. It's quite a feat, and reveals just how rich and powerful this king was. But lest any think that this king is doing it to show appreciation and love, or to show love towards others. Now we're told of a different motive in verse 4. It says there, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of the, his greatness for many days, 180 days. So this was about a Ahasuerus. This is about him showing off. He is showing off his glory. He's showing off his pomp. Really, it's all about him. Even though he is lavishing gifts uh, on people and throwing a grand party, which those in attendance undoubtedly enjoyed and were blessed by, making him seem so generous, it was still all about him. It was about him and his ability to bless people. It was about him and his ability to to do what he was doing, showing off his glory. And as we'll see in just a bit, these types of people are nice and generous and just your, your friend until you make them mad. And it shows all along they were just serving themselves. But showing off his greatness to his officials for six months, that wasn't sufficient. It had to be followed up by another party. This time, the whole town was invited. This is in verse 5. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. So now the king expands his party to include all people in Susa. Now Susa is the main capital in the Persian Empire, which is located in what is now the Iran-Iraq border. So this is not all the people in the empire, but still you have everyone in a capital city invited to this for seven days. 
And it doesn't matter who you are, great and small, of high societal significance, of low societal importance, all are invited to come to this party for seven full days. And then Scripture describes this the king's garden in verse 6. And everything described here is really unbelievable in the ancient Near East. It is meant to take our breath away, to see how vast uh, everything is. Everything mentioned is the highest wealth. The greatest material. And we usually don't see this much detail given about a king's place. In fact, only two buildings in the Old Testament are given such a description. The tabernacle and temple and this king's garden courtyard here. Additionally, this part of the world is likely where the Garden of Eden would have been, even though we don't know the exact location, we can narrow it down to this area. And so, here's what we have. We have a counter garden. A counter house. One that is of this world. And it's impressive. What about God's house? Well, it had just been destroyed in ruins. It had been, after being uh, in ruins, it was rebuilt. But Ezra 3.12 says it's not as impressive. The men cried when they saw how unimpressive it was. So you have this king's garden building, impressive. But God's, not so much. The world seems like it is large and in charge and really impressive. Whereas God does not seem to be as impressive. By all appearances, it seems that who's really large and in charge is the kingdom of this world. That Ahasuerus is the king of kings, as he declared. That he is the true power by all sight. That man is the true power and sovereign. Meanwhile, God's people are suffering. They're weak. They're oppressed. They're unimpressive. God is hidden. He's not even mentioned in these details. You see what the Scripture is doing here. Because this is not the way we tend to think. Man, this world, it's, it's great and grand. And, and I'm suffering. And, and it seems like the world is so much more powerful than, than God. And men can be so much more in control than God. And it causes us to fear and worry. But as we'll see, where do we find God? By faith, we see Him working his redemptive plan in the hidden details. But not only is the kingdom of this of the world very impressive in power and sight, but it also has incredible power to bless. You see in verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. So golden vessels, they're the most costly. And everyone had access to one. And then when it says vessels of different kinds, What this is referring to is everybody at the party has their own unique vessel. That's incredible. That's unheard of. What great wealth and power and ability to bless. And this is not just any old wine. This is royal wine. This is the king's well-aged $100 a bottle wine. And there is no limit to it. Verse 8, And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders 
to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. So this, this order, this lawful order, there's no compulsion, means there's no restraint. There's no holding back. As we see, as the verse goes on to explain, the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Have as much as you want. I mean, think about the, the power to bless. Our government seems to say, no, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. This government is saying, have as much as you want for free. The power to bless and wine is associated uh, with the greatest blessing in the ancient Near East and in Scripture. But here we see this kingdom given unlimited, giving unlimited wine, the best wine, to all people for seven days. It seems like this kingdom, the kingdom of this world, is greater than God's kingdom. It can truly bless. Meanwhile, God's kingdom is unimpressive and hidden. Again, this is typically our experience. Man, the, the world has the power to bless. God? Where is He? That is, can be our thinking. Now, we see Ahasuerus wants to show off even more. In verses 10-11, through On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs, I'm not going to read their names again. I'll let Doug do that later. The seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And we need to understand uh, some cultural background and customs in order to see what's, what's going on here. Uh, the women were often separated from men in a party like this. Uh, hence we read in verse 9 that Queen Vashti was throwing her own party, a uh, separate party for the women. And this was the proper custom at the time in this empire. During these pagan parties, concubines were invited to come in for the men only uh, to look at. So this would be objectifying women, uh, which shows just how pagan this kingdom is. And so this is what Ahasuerus is asking Queen Vashti to do. Uh, something that was only for the concubines, he asked Queen Vashti to come in and do. And this is more of Ahasuerus' self-promotion, even exposing and shaming his own wife, objectifying her for his own purpose. But it does not go according to his plan, which brings us to the second sign of a wicked man, showing us the need for the perfect man, and that is self-protection. Look at verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command, delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. So Queen Vashti did something quite serious. She did not obey a king's command, and the king became enraged. And so the king asked his wise men, his lawyers and interpreters of the law, what should be done to Queen Vashti for disobeying his command? And one of the wise men, Mimikin, responds that not only has Vashti done wrong against the king, but all men in the kingdom. He says, women will follow Vashti's example and treat their husbands with contempt. Wrath will be plenty, and they will refuse to submit to their husbands. And so Vashti is to be made an example of by never being allowed back into the king's presence 
again. This decision is to be declared throughout the kingdom to ensure that all women honor their husbands. And this, of course, pleased this pagan king. Now, how are we to think about this? Vashti did disobey a king's command. She also refused to submit to her husband. Doesn't this violate both Romans 13, obey the governing authorities, and many places in Scripture that calls wives to submit to their husbands? So are we to see Vashti in the wrong here and the king's response in the right? Well, let's consider a few things to put this into perspective here. First, Scripture makes sure to let us know that Ahasuerus made this decision when he was filled with wine, an idiom for heavy drinking. Uh, seven days with no limits, you're likely going to be drunk. So he's doing it, uh, he's making a decision while drunk. Second, it was proper to keep the sexes separated at this kind of feast, including the queen. Uh, during normal meals, the, the queen would be allowed to uh, sit with the king. However, during a party like this, as we see in verse 9, uh, there is no such thing. This is only for the men. No girls allowed, except the concubines would be invited in to come and uh, do sinful things. And so, given these circumstances, it is quite likely that the king in his drunkenness wants the queen to come in and act like a concubine. He is asking her to do something beneath her dignity and honor which would also be beneath his dignity and honor to allow his queen to be shamed like this. And while we must obey God's commandments regarding submitting to governing authorities and wives submitting to their own husbands, this does not include when being asked to sin. We only obey when it pertains to things moral, ethical, and lawful. We must say with the apostles in Acts 5.29, we must obey God and not man when we are asked to violate God's moral law. No human authority is absolute. So asking her to show herself off in a sinful way to a bunch of drunken men is immoral and dishonoring and therefore dishonoring to God. And God does not require her to do this. God does not require us to submit to men when they asked us to sin. Not only that, she's actually doing the honorable thing for her own husband in not allowing his queen to be treated like this. She is actually quite courageous in her refusal here, knowing that it's going to cost her. It's going to cost her. But we see that this king is not only drunk on wine, but he's also drunk on power. Rather than showing his wife love by protectively covering her, he wanted to uncover her and expose her to shame for his own pride and pleasure. But now that she has refused, he is enraged that his pride has been hurt and his power is not recognized. And so, as men drunk on power typically do, do he responds in great anger when his will is not done. When he realizes he has lost control. Because it is all about his power and control, he seeks to punish Vashti with a show of power and control. If she doesn't want to come, then he will ban her from coming. 
and he seeks to expose her in order to cover himself. He gets his yes-men around him to validate him. He, he sends out a proclamation for all to hear in order to shame her so that he doesn't look bad and shameful by having his own queen not obey him. So he and his men make this proclamation to protect themselves, to ensure their honor is maintained, and that they remain in control. And even though it is proper for wives to show respect to their husbands, the Scripture says, it is, this is not about doing right before God, but about protecting their own insecure image. While seeking to uncover and dishonor his wife, he seeks to cover and honor himself and to cover his own shame by exposing her to shame for not doing what he said. This is the way of evil men who are drunk on power. There's really nothing new under the sun. And ironically, you know what this shows? This actually reveals that this man with vast power doesn't really have power. He really is not in control. He could not get his own wife to come, so she ends up getting her way and not coming. Isn't this ironic? She doesn't come, so he says, oh yeah, you don't want to come? Well, I'll make a decree that you can't come. It just shows he's not in control. And just like with all evil men, they'll be your best friend and lavish you with gifts and, and, and be, your, be so gregarious until you offend them. Then it's about self-protection, even to the point of abusing their power to expose and shame others to cover themselves. This is the kingdom of this world. This is the way it is in the kingdom of darkness. Even though they claim to be for us, seem very powerful and able to bless us, they are simply self-serving and self-protecting. And this is why, beloved, we ought to give thanks for the perfect and righteous King of Kings. How different is our King? Rather than serving Himself, He came not to be served, but to serve and give His life as a ransom for us. He humbled Himself by assuming our humanity, thus veiling His glory, rather than showing it off, even though it was showing forth His great glory in doing this. He exposed Himself to nakedness, to mockery, to open shame on the cross, but He did it in order to cover us from eternal shame, taking our punishment, pain for our sins. He was the one willing to be open and exposed to shame so that we would be eternally covered, so He would cover us His bride with honor and glory and bestow on us such things. He has exalted us to His right hand to reign with Him in His kingdom. He puts us on display for all to see. Not to expose us at His own expense. Not to shame us, but to show forth His great grace for sending us holy and blameless and above reproach, beautiful in every way, covered in His radiant robes of righteousness, washed in His blood, spotless and cleaned by Him. Our faces will never be covered with shame but we will always radiate brightly His glory in His presence. 
rather than casting us out of His presence forever, He was cast out of God's presence, forsaken on the cross, in order to bring us into His presence forever, where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore, where His face will smile upon us and shine upon us forever. And so while it seems that the powers of this world and evil men are in control and to be feared, may we remember that they are not ultimately in control. In fact, their abusive anger testifies to this. This is why they respond the way they do, because they have lost control. But Christ our King is the true King of kings, the sovereign who is truly in control and who loves us and works out all things for our good even when it seems like He is hidden, even when it seems like, how can this possibly be used for my good? He is using it in ways that we may not see at the time to draw us near to Himself, to transform us into His image, this beautiful image, and to bring us closer to Him. And so may this book of the Bible Teach us to walk by faith and not by sight, knowing who truly is in charge. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we often don't realize when you are at work. It's so easy to see the pomp of this world and 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 the power that this world seems to have and the ability to bless, and yet you are hidden. But not by faith. We know, based on what Your Word testifies, that You are indeed with us, working out Your perfect plan for us. Help us to trust this, O Lord. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You have been listening to a message from Trinity Bible Church in Powell, Wyoming. To receive more information about Trinity Bible Church or to support the ministry, go to tbcwyoming.com. That is tbcwyoming.com.